Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So I'm happy to get to spend some time with you again this evening speaking about the Dhamma. And first I want to uh, take a moment to appreciate all of our good fortune in being here. It's said that to encounter the Dhamma is rare. To have the conditions in your life where you can go to practice is also rare, of health, well-being, finding teachers, being in a place that's peaceful enough to do a retreat. And then also you can appreciate your own wholesomeness, so your own sincerity and your own goodness in choosing to spend the week like this, or for some of you, several weeks. So I feel that uh, for myself also, even on the side of being a teacher, I can tell every time that I'm teaching that uh, this is good for me. I get to hang out with uh, wise people who encourage me to also manifest in the wisest, best way possible. And in some way, all of us are on a... uh, kind of like a dharma detox diet. (laughs) So it means detox like when you take out all the other inputs you take in, like all the other TV shows or conversations or um, cartoons or whatever you would otherwise be inputting. And uh, for this week, all that you're taking in is uh, the dharma. So it's it's very uh, purifying activity. And we're in a solid place in the middle of the retreat, so to speak. We're we're in the midst of it now, so you're definitely cooking, uh, whether you know it or not. I encourage you to take your own ideas about whether things are going well or not uh, with a grain of salt, or sometimes giant uh, shake of salt. Uh, So we're in this, this cauldron, this process of purification here. And the heart and the mind is uh, in some ways like being cooked by the Dhamma, by your practice, by holding the precepts. Sometimes I think of these uh, square zabutans and even the chairs, you could think of it as little uh, Dharma cooker burners. (laughs) So every time you come in and you sit, uh, you're being cooked. So... Don't worry about what's happening or how many times your mind wanders. Just come back, put your sincere effort in, and uh, the cooking will happen. <laughs> so I'd like to talk to you about an uh, aspect of the teaching that could be helpful for uh, understanding what we're doing here uh, and for being able to investigate your experience uh, further. So there's an aspect of the teaching that uh, describes the way in which we 
take ourselves to be things. We take ourselves to be solid. We perceive there to be a me who is living this life. And I want to engage in some inquiry with you uh, through some of frameworks uh, of the Buddha about whether this is actually so in the way we might experience this to be so. So there's uh, something called uh, Sakaya Diti. Diti means view, as in Samaditi, right view. And there's an aspect of this called personality view or identity view, which is something that is said to be uh, lifted, to be, we are said to be relieved of uh, when we reach the first stage of awakening. Now just in brief, this uh, you know, awakening, enlightenment, stages, all this stuff. You remember the last time that I was um, speaking with you, I was talking about um, gravity and understanding nature. And in a way you could consider awakening as alignment with nature, alignment with the truth. So in this process of practice, in this process of uh, human development, evolution, there's a way in which we're coming into greater alignment with the truth. As part of this uh, process, I should say, many people report in their experience that as they sit, they find themselves reliving a lot of things that have happened to them and also remembering uh, a lot of things that they have done that they might regret. So things that you've said, uh, actions we've taken, Uh, Sometimes even from a long time ago, you know, when we were very small. So if this is happening to you, this uh, is a normal part of this aligning process, I would say. And to me, it's partly a, a recognition as we come into alignment that we recognize the ways in which we may have been out of alignment. And we experience the pain of that. Uh, both the impact that might have had on others, and we might feel some uh, remorse about that, which is actually considered a wholesome thing. So if that's happening for you, then just allow that to be there. Notice it. If there's a sense of regret, remorse, feel that. Try to avoid steering into guilt, which is when there becomes a sense of self around it, like bad me, I did this. Uh, I'm always like this and stuff like that. So feel the pain of it and then uh, forgive yourself. Allow it to be released. So in this process of alignment, it's said that there are kind of different stages in which you sort of click into alignment more. (laughs) And then when you click into that next level of alignment, you still might be wobbling around, but within a less, uh, smaller range of wackiness, you could say, or delusion. Uh, And then there's several clicks that can happen. So it's supposed to be that in the first click, you are relieved of this personality view, identity view, Sakaya Diti, which has to do with a false sense of individuality, of a false sense of being a completely separate uh, independent, controlling entity. 
So I'll give you some uh, examples of that. Uh, we have a view, for example, that uh, I am this body. So that would be uh, considered a certain identity view. Uh, either I am this body, uh, this body is me. There's a me who's in this body somewhere. Right? Uh, or there's a me who owns this body. And you could say in our practice of mindfulness, we have the opportunity to uh, investigate these claims in some way. So to see if this is actually true. So the Buddha very helpfully outlined um, several different elements of our experience that we have a habit of mistakenly taking to be ourselves. Now, this question of uh, self or not self uh, is a well-known uh, dilemma in Buddhism or in philosophical uh, pursuits. In one of the uh, suttas, the teachings the Buddha gave, the first one in the Digha Nikaya, he talks about uh, 62 different views that were held uh, at the time, uh, and he uh, basically refutes each one in various different ways. So views about uh, the identity of self or views about the life and views about cause and effect. In some ways, we've kind of whittled down, so there's not maybe as many prevailing views, but there's a couple of views about self, not self, that are there. And yet, in some ways, the Buddha himself didn't really take up this question of what you are or are not. So the question that he was more interested in helping us with is this question about suffering and the end of suffering. And so in this approach to the question, the practice that we're doing and our inquiry can be focused more around understanding how things work, you could say. So how does it work that we feel like there is someone here? How does it work that suffering gets created? How does it work that uh, suddenly there is an adversary in our life. What's going on there, and what is the way to be free of that? So this is really a different approach to the question that's um, in some ways very practical. And so the Buddha points us to different factors of our human experience that it's particularly helpful for us to understand uh, in order to be free. So our inquiry is more into how a, what we call a human being or what we call ourself um, operates, really. And mindfulness is a really helpful tool in trying to understand this. So this is partly why uh, for some um, in the practice, uh, I know I've given this advice to people and others have too, is like, well, what if you were uh, suddenly found yourself in a human body? You know, you're like an alien who has uh, been suddenly embodied. And I know there are various uh, films of this sort, right? Where alien comes to earth and suddenly takes up some human body. And then in these films, the alien is actually like, you know, really 
interested like how the hands work and what does it feel like to walk and you know they're trying to like drink water through their eyes and then you know like <laughs> mouth and what that's like and um, so what would that be like if you really took this fresh approach to understanding what is this like to be a human being you know what is this experience like and then particularly be interested in the aspects of experience where we start to get snagged and you know, where there's some friction, you could say, in the flow of experience. So where there's a creation of uh, suffering, of difficulty, of strain, of stress. So we have this experience of having a particular point of view and of feeling embodied. But I would suggest that this idea of a me in this is actually just a story that we have. And this is a mental factor, which when we examine it more closely, uh, doesn't actually have the kind of continuity that it seems. So the Buddha talks about this as one of the distortions that we have, as a word called vipalasa, distortions. And this framework of distortions, which actually can be uh, applied to many different areas of life is where we might have a view and then that view informs the way that we perceive things. Based on that perception, then we have more thoughts. We think about things in a certain way and that reinforces our view. So I'll give you a um, more mundane example of this. Um, so in the place where uh, we're staying right now, uh, it's in the campus here, uh, lower down. And when I first came to my room, I found that there was some um, bird neighbors who had taken up residence. So there's a bird's nest right above, uh, near the door of my room. And I live in the city uh, in San Francisco. So, uh, you know, when I come here, I get to be in nature. And I both enjoy nature, but I also have this uh, sort of idea of myself as someone who likes nature. Right? <laughs> I was just expounding this view, actually, to uh, Jozen earlier today, uh, yesterday, I think it was. So at first, I was happy about these birds and swallows. and um, But then the first morning, I found that um, my neighbors are on a different schedule than I am. <laughs> So about 4 a.m., they're all tripping, and uh, <laughs> day has already begun uh, for them, and uh, very loudly. So then um, you had a different uh, idea about my neighbors now, right? <laughs> Actually, firstly, first I accused Greg of chirping, who is my human neighbor, and then uh, he told me it was not him, so then uh, I found it was the bird. So, you know, I had this, this view also, like, oh... Uh, this is my place. You know, this is the spirit rock teacher place and you're uh, waking up too early and it's a problem. And, um, and then a little later in the day, um, I was trying to write the uh, Dhamma talk and it turns out on the other side of the residence, um, it was very, sh there's a nice uh, roof. So it's very shady and a group of turkeys likes to hang out there. <laughs> And they're not, they're actually not noisy, but um, they do poop a lot. <laughs> so, uh, you know, trying to write 
Dharma talk, very, um, you know, high level activity. And there's a whole bunch of turkeys sitting like one foot from me, you know, on the porch. Uh, and I don't know if they could or couldn't see me, but they're actually like looking at me and just pooping, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so this also, at first I had this, uh, <laughs> this idea, like, wh- like, what are you doing here? This is, uh, you know, this is my uh, residence and you're <laughs> pooping on the porch, you know. Um, but so the mind has this view. And in this case, you know, the view is of... Uh, is based in human dominance, honestly, right? There's a certain like unperceived human dominance, like the humans have built these uh, domiciles and so then uh, this is my place and you are smaller than me and you are birds and thus, uh, <laughs> you know, should be inferior and should know your place. So, you know, it wasn't like played out like this, but really there was a perspective like this. Unfortunately, my mind, in, in some ways, um, doesn't like to hang out in these perspectives too much. I, I feel like one of the benefits of practice is that uh, you know, we can become less and less tolerant of certain kinds of suffering in some ways. So rather than you know, drill down in that and really hunker down, there's a way in which the mind is kind of like, what else is possible? You know, like there's, there's always at least one other perspective that's possible in a situation. And I feel like through practice, this happens like almost automatically. And sometimes it feels kind of like the, um, those robot vacuum cleaners, you know, that they go and they, if they bump into a wall, they come and go back and then they'll like go like this and, you know, they'll keep going until they find some uh, exit. So it's like the mind doesn't want to hang out in these areas of oppositional suffering. So it keeps like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> So then, you know, in reflection, uh, you know, with my turkey neighbors, it's like, oh, like, actually, I'm here for this week, but uh, maybe it's actually their residence, you know? <laughs> like, maybe I'm visiting their area and not uh, <laughs> they're visiting my area. So, uh, and maybe if that bothers me that they poop on the porch, I can sweep that away, you know? And then it's uh, interesting being a Dharma teacher because sometimes one's own advice comes back, you know. So then it was like recognizing yourself as part of nature, right? <laughs> so then it's like, oh, yeah, actually, it's kind of cool, like, to have these birds around. and we're, you know. So then that became somewhat more okay in some way, even though the same thing was happening. Like, even this afternoon, they were looking at me and pooping while I'm writing this <laughs> Dharma talk. <laughs> And then with the ones in the front, uh, you know, there's a way in which I was like, okay, I can put on um, earplugs, right? Like also they've been here before me. And um, so I did that. And then I also started to notice, you know, rather than being caught in my view of like, what are you doing? You're wrong. As I opened the door, I noticed that every time the bird flies away. Uh, And uh, I don't know, but it seems like, oh, it's scared. You know, I am much bigger than this bird so when I open the door it gets scared and it flies away and this happens every time I open the door and so I start to tune in like oh this is actually I'm being disruptive to their life too you know I think they're being disruptive to my life but there's another perspective from which like I'm interrupting their life too so even just some shift of that way you know this there's a way in which we usually assume ourselves both to be here and also very substantially to be the center of the universe you know, like everything is in relationship to me and to 
what's good for me and to uh, how I want things to be. And this can cause a lot of suffering, uh, as well as being uh, actually false. Also in a, a more mundane way in your regular, um, regular life, there's a, a billboard that I saw a sign about, and it's on an area of the highway where there's a lot of traffic. And the billboard is for a bicycle coalition. And it says, uh, you are not stuck in traffic, you are traffic. So <laughs> <laughs> right? also that shift from like, oh, everyone else is a problem to me. I have this thing I want to do. This is my view, right? To like, oh, actually we're all in this together in some way. There's this flow of traffic and to the other people, I'm in their way. Right? And we're all just trying to get home. So in an even more um, impressive way, a friend of mine had told me about a time that she was um, mugged in um, Oakland and um, someone had a gun and um, it was late at night and she and her girlfriend were coming back from somewhere and um, you know, they said to put all the stuff they had in their pockets down and then run. And so they did that. And she said she only had like $4 and a chapstick or something, but, uh, you know, and the keys also. So I asked her later, like, oh, weren't you scared? That's a difficult experience. And she said, um, yeah, I was scared, but actually I could see that he was scared too. You know, like he was holding the hand with the gun and it was shaking. So we were both scared. So that's, she's not, not, this friend is not overtly a practitioner, but that's good practice, you know, shifting perspective. It's not just about you, even in these extreme situations where it feels like, oh, I'm being wronged, like this is a problem. You know, my view is that I am, I'm the victim in this. Like, wow, what if we had the ability to access multiple perspectives? the world would be a very different place. So what can help us in this? So here in retreat, we have a good opportunity to uh, actually investigate in a more detailed way what is it that we take to be ourselves. And the Buddha gives a particular uh, scheme that I found helpful, which is about the five aggregates uh, as particular areas of experience, particular ways in which our experience of ourself get constructed, that it's helpful for us to look into. Now, we've already been looking into these in our practice uh, for several of them, but uh, I'd like to mention them to you, uh, including a few that have not been mentioned um, yet. So the first one is uh, talked about is form. And this is like uh, the physical form. So this one we've been practicing with from the very beginning. And usually we take this experience of the body to be a solid entity uh, that we call our, myself. Now, scientifically, uh, this is also not true. The body is not fully solid. You know, the body is actually a mass of shifting and changing cells. Blood is always flowing through. The cells are being born and dying. Everything is always in motion in that which we call our body. 
And in our experience of it, when we pay attention, we can also notice that the experience of it is constantly changing. So there is some experience of solidity, of fluidity, of mobility, of temperature. And the Buddha gave some metaphors for each of these aspects uh, of our experience. And for this one, he said, you know, it's something like that might seem solid, but it's actually totally not solid. So the, the experience of the body, the body is actually like the foam on ocean waves. So through the motion of the wave coming, sometimes in the top is some like bubbles and stuff. Sometimes they seem to collect and it almost seems like it's something solid, but it's actually so insubstantial. It's going to hit the ground and then dissolve. So a second one that he talked about was this one of uh, Vedana or feeling tone that Greg had mentioned and that we uh, talked about this morning a little bit. So this quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant or neutral, that's actually uh, there in every sense experience. So every sound, every smell, every taste, every touch, every mental object. Every sensation has a valence of this sort. We misperceive frequently that this is something solid. This is something permanent, and that this is actually ourself. So we misperceive a body sensation that is unpleasant uh, to be ourselves. We label that as my knee pain. And then we have mental thoughts about that and proliferate and create a world. So when we tune into that in more detail, we can notice that this feeling tone is actually constantly changing. And in this way, uh, it's not ours. It's not me. It's not mine. And it's not changing in the way that I would like it to all the time. So in this way, like I can't really own this. If I owned it, I'd make it do what I wanted, which was get more and more pleasant, period. So for this one of the feeling tone, the metaphor the Buddha gave was as uh, bubbles that arise from uh, raindrops on a puddle. So, it just arises from these conditions in a moment, and then it's gone. So investigate this and see. Check it out. And there can be very uh, interesting things to learn from this. With uh, feeling tone, one area in which you can notice this um, particularly well is in the act of uh, eating meditation, which you have several opportunities for during the day, or even uh, drinking tea meditation, something like that. Because there's ways in which uh, the feeling tone can be both surprising, like this Thing you thought would be tasting pleasant is actually not as pleasant as you thought or when you tune in uh, actually the opposite right? 
You thought it was going to be unpleasant, but it's actually pleasant. Also, you can notice then how you can't make it last. It comes, it goes, it fades out so quickly. And when you tune into that, then you get a sense about how poignantly futile our attempt to line up pleasant experience for the rest of our lives is as a strategy for well-being. So third one that is there uh, has been mentioned briefly, but uh, not elaborate on so much. And this is a sanya or perception. So this is a mental factor that is a labeling or recognition that happens automatically in our mind. Sometimes it happens with a word verbally. And sometimes there's just a knowing without the word. So, for example, you know, when you take a fork from the uh, silverware thing, you don't always say fork in your mind, right? But maybe sometimes you do. But you're aware this is the implement with which you can eat your salad, right? So this is a, an aspect of thought. And when we're talking about um, or meant mental objects, when it arises to the level of uh, label, and I was talking about this um, when we were doing guided meditation with thinking or mind objects. Is noticing when this comes, how it comes without your script. And also particularly interesting is to notice when it is wrong. So, for example, when we misperceive something uh, around, uh, for me, sometimes it's misperceiving something uh, in the environment that I think might be an animal. Uh, and then I see like, oh, no, it's actually just a moving leaf or a bush or something like that. It's helpful to recognize how often we're misperceiving in this way. A friend of mine from the city came out uh, for a retreat in uh, springtime, I think it was. And some of you might have been here in the spring and the creeks were running full. As Greg mentioned, there was a lot of rain. You know, so She told me the first night uh, that she kept hearing these sounds and she was thinking like, wow, there's so many car alarms here. Why don't people turn their car alarms off? And, and then she realized that it was uh, actually frogs. <laughs> But her city perspective was that the sound is like car alarms and it's like something's happening. And um, So the particular perception that's the most helpful to examine is, of course, this idea of me or mine that arises in relationship to uh, our body, to experience, to things. The metaphor that the Buddha used in relationship to this was of a mirage. So it's something that seems like it is like this, but as you approach it, you can see it's not. So a fourth one is uh, 
called Sankara, and it's uh, translated various ways, but we'll call it mental formations. So this uh, perception is, is one of them, but it's uh, aspects of our mental life that arise. So it includes all of the emotions, your intentions, all of this stuff. And as Joseph was saying this morning, we can uh, take those to be me or mine. I own this. Uh, this anger is mine. Or even the I am angry. I am this. So the metaphor that the Buddha gave with this one is about a banana tree trunk. We don't have too many uh, banana trees here, but uh, I've seen them before in some tropical places. And a banana tree is basically like a big stalk. So it's a looks like it's a solid tree, but it's empty inside. And interesting for this metaphor also is it's, it's kind of like a big you know, blade of grass with these empty things inside, and yet it has this huge fancy production of bananas. Like the comb of bananas is like very big and uh, kind of uh, showy, right? <laughs> kind of like strong mental formations. Right? <laughs> and yet when you examine it, it's actually also empty. You know, it'll, it'll fall down. There's nothing there. There's nothing at the core. So notice if you have these beliefs sometimes that uh, I am this emotion, this emotion is me. Or even I am in this emotion, this emotion is in me. That there is a me that is related to this. The fifth one may be... Uh, the more unusual one to consider, which is uh, vinyana or consciousness. So that even the knowing that arises with a sense experience itself is not me or mine. And this too, as it arises with a sense experience and then fades, the metaphor is that it's like a magic show. So this consciousness is that which appears and reveals all of the others. So this knowing quality. In our practice, we so far have been examining uh, objects, more like the experience of the body, body sensations as an object, and then uh, thoughts as an object, and emotions, the energy that moves through mind states as an object. So it could be that even if you're getting pretty good at seeing those as all not me, not mine, coming and going, it can be good to turn around and see whether there is a kind of hiding place of identity, which is in the knower. So the knower, sometimes also is like the meditator, the one who knows, you know, the one who is directing the practice. And it's very subtle, the, the identification that can be there. But also it's not to be found when you examine it. So I encourage you to check this out. Like, is there anything personal, permanent, controlling, independent entity in even the knowing? 
does it have any characteristics that could be called me or mine? Now, in some ways, you might feel like, well, what's the problem with that? If I'm able to not cling to or attach to or identify with the body, emotions, thoughts, aren't I doing pretty well? That's pretty good, right? Probably alleviated 90% of suffering there, right? So uh, Ajahn Mahabua, was one of the forest masters, says, whenever there's a center in the knowing, there is dukkha. So this is the thing, is whenever there is some identification, whenever there is some clinging, however seemingly subtle it is, there still is something we need to protect, something that we want to prevent from being harmed, and something that can be held in opposition to the rest of the world, whether it's experience or birds or the weather or body sensations. So the Buddha pointed these out, uh, particularly these five, as areas for investigation, really specifically for the purpose of ending suffering. And I really appreciate this. You know, it was like, well, there are these processes by which we seem to exist. And here, highlighted, are the ones in which we tend to get caught in. And here's a process, a practice of mindfulness, a practice of settling the heart and mind and being able to investigate these and to see through this for yourself, not because you heard it in a lecture or because you read it in a book, but because you've seen for yourself. So as we investigate this, Uh, body and mind, this human experience, we can see that there's nothing really there in the same way that we usually perceive it to be. This always gets a little bit tricky because there is a way in which we certainly feel like, ah, but there is this uniqueness to this body. Certainly when I'm drinking water, I'm feeling that and not this other person. So it's not saying that there's not a uniqueness to experience or to arising moments. But it's a little bit more like everything is constructed. Everything is constructed, everything is concocted in some way. So it's arising causally, and then it will pass away causally also. The best metaphor that is there for this, I think, is the um, rainbow, right? So... A rainbow appears and it's beautiful. But it's not really a thing. It's an appearance that's there because of the way the light is shining through the prism or the mist, the rain. But when those things shift, which happens rather quickly, then it's gone. But was it really there to begin with? You can't really take the rainbow home. You can't package it. It arises causally, and then when those particular causes and conditions end, uh, it also is no longer apparent. In some ways, this is true about everything in our environment, and most particularly about 
that which we call ourself. So here's a story that the Buddha told about this, uh, a metaphor for this as well. So supposing there were a king who had never heard the sound of a lute before. It's like a stringed instrument. So this king hears the sound of the lute and says, wow, that's so beautiful. It's so delightful, tantalizing, intoxicating, ravishing, enthralling. What is this instrument? And then the uh, people would tell him, oh, that is called the lute. And so then he says, go and fetch me the lute. So then they bring the lute and then he'll say, look at it and he says, enough with your lute. Fetch me just the sound. It's the sound that I want of the lute. And then they'd say, well, you know, there's many different pieces of it. There's the wood and the skin and the neck and the frame. And, you know, when you play it with a certain human effort, then the music comes, but it's really just all these different components. And this, so the king impatiently says, enough with that. I'm going to get the sound. And so breaks the lute into 10 pieces. And still, of course, uh, can't find the sound. So then breaks it again to 100 pieces and uh, pulverizes it. And still the sound is not becoming apparent. Right? So shaving it up. Into, and then finally decides to burn it into a, in a fire. And having burned it, there's just ashes. So then he's winnowing the ashes, looking for the sound, the sound in that. And still it's not coming, obviously. And then eventually the ashes might get washed away or uh, blown away in the wind. And he would say, oh, this, it's a sorry thing, this loot, whatever this loot may be. And people have been totally deceived by this. They can't find the sound. So in the same way, uh, the Buddha says, a practitioner can investigate all of these aggregates, can investigate form, uh, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And through investing in these, can see whether there's any me or mine or I am within that. And no thoughts of me or mine or I am can be found within these. So really what we learn as we attend to these is that there is this way in which we could be just recognizing ourselves as nature. Uh, the arising and passing of each of these aspects. But unfortunately, because of delusion, we have a tendency to cling to these, to some aspect of this. We have this tendency to believe these, to take this to be ourselves. And then as they change, particularly as they change in ways that are not pleasing to us, we suffer. And in some ways, through repeated observation of the nature of these different aspects of what we usually call ourselves, through practicing this different kind of knowing with mindfulness, it's possible for us to see over and over again the ways in which the me, the mind, the I is not found within this. 
And through this, there can be an effortlessly, an effortless letting go, almost in spite of yourself. So the beautiful thing in this teaching is that we're examining, we're able to examine this process by which we're having experience and trying to understand that. And in this way, we have all of the equipment that we need for complete liberation, for complete alignment right here in this body and mind system. So the Buddha says in another uh, example about how you can relate to this, you know, that these different aspects that we usually take to be ourselves, they can't be ourselves, right? So they're not under our control. They're constantly changing. There's no inherent me or mine in that. So he says, what do you think, monks or practitioners, if a person were to gather or burn grass, twigs, branches, and leaves that they found here. And you can imagine here with all the high grass, how what if they collected that? You might see the caretakers doing that. And what if they were going to burn that or throw it away? Would the thought occur to you, oh no, it's us that this person is gathering or burning or cutting down. And they say, oh no, because those things are not ourselves, nor do they belong to us. So even so, monks, whatever is not yours, let go of it. Your letting go of it will be for your long-term welfare and happiness. And what isn't yours? Form is not yours. Feeling is not yours. Perception is not yours. Mental formations are not yours. Consciousness is not yours. So let go of these, and your letting go will be for your long-term welfare, and happiness. So on the way, of course, in this exploration, a lot of what we encounter is us doing the opposite. So is clinging, is misidentifying one or more of these to be ourselves. So in the practice, it's, it's also really helpful to hold a experience, to hold oneself with a lot of compassion. You know, sometimes people come and they're frustrated because they say, like, I've been practicing for weeks now or X number of years, and uh, still, like, the mind is wandering or I got duped by this emotion and roiled around in it and, I spend a lot of my time painting pictures of tigers and running away from them. And, you know. So my advice is to allow yourself to be very humbled by the power of these habits of mind. It's a very humbling Dharma practice. Very, very humbling. And it's good to hold oneself with a lot of kindness and compassion, too. Because you can include however long that you have been practicing uh, against however much the rest of your life when you were not practicing was. 
And if you believe in past lives, then you could include all of those as well, right? So it's good. Our efforts here are good. Our efforts here are worthy. And trust that you're learning, you're cooking, whether you know it or not. But the habitual strategy, the habitual view, the strong view is going to be, I am this body, I am these feelings, I am these emotions. The habitual view is going to be, the road to happiness is by aligning all circumstances to please me, to get everyone to agree with the way that I see the world, and to try to get everyone to follow my script. And as I mentioned, this includes humans and not humans also. <laughs> we want the birds to also accord to our wishes and the sounds, the weather. So a lot of kindness in this approach. Uh, interest and kindness. Now we've been doing the metta practice here for uh, some days and uh, I know we've practiced with the metta for yourself. And one instruction that could be helpful for the rest of the evening, I'll offer this for you, is to see if you can practice with yourself as you're walking and even as you're doing the things in your evening routine to get ready for bed, as if you were doing them with a quality of kindness. So if you're drinking water, what would it be like to drink water, to feed yourself lovingly? So you do it with some care and attention. If you were actually feeding or giving to drink someone who you cared about, you do that with some intimacy. You do some with carefulness. <coughs> what is it like if you brush your teeth with a sense of love, of metta, caring for this body, this precious body? What it would it be like if you wash your face, change your clothes, with a sense of goodwill, of kindness, of metta. What would it be like if you put yourself to bed with a sense of metta? Tuck yourself in. Would you fling yourself on the bed? <laughs> would you fling that other one there? Yeah. So the answer to this is not uh, in words, but it's kind of a, a koan of how we approach this. So like with so many things, it's a lived answer, how we can care for ourselves, how we can care for others. And in this way, we're cultivating this loving attention, this kind attention. And when we include that with this curiosity and investigation, these are all excellent ingredients for living a good life, both here on retreat and when we go out into the world and for gaining the insight, the kind of deep understanding that leads to greater and greater alignment with the truth, greater and greater freedom from suffering, spending less time in the caves of delusion, 
and more time in freedom that gives you more space to connect with the world in ways that are true, to connect with nature. So if there's aspects of what you've heard tonight that's interesting to you, I encourage you to investigate them. If there's things that seemed uh, cryptic or confusing, you can either hold them in the question mark basket, you can leave them on the floor here, or just take them as sort of a hypothesis that you're in the lab of being able to check out for yourself. So thank you for your practice. May we all be well cooked today and the entire retreat. Thank you. So you can come back to your body again if you have been listening and departed from that foundation. You can feel your breath. Can notice how it is in your heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.